Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The state assembly met today to begin final discussions on the GOP-led shared revenue plan. While today's floor session began at 1 this afternoon, Republican members called a recess to debate changes to the bill. Earlier today, Governor Evers released a statement saying he was, quote, optimistic and hopeful, end quote, that a compromise could be met, reports the Associated Press. While Evers says he hoped to reach a deal before today's legislative session, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss commented that he thought their talks only left them, quote, on first base. At a press conference earlier today, Speaker Voss said that the bill will now guarantee a 15% increase in local funding, up from 10% in previous iterations of the bill. Voss then said that they are done negotiating the bill, and the Assembly met to vote on the bill just before broadcast. After a national drug take-back day earlier this year, Wisconsin had collected more unwanted medications than any other state in the nation. Wisconsin officials received more than 55,000 pounds of pharmaceuticals in this year's event. Since the event's founding in 2010, Wisconsinites have given up more than 1.1 million pounds of medication. Wisconsin's arm of Drug Take Back Day is organized by both the state health and justice departments and provides a safe and responsible way of disposing of unwanted prescription drugs. Middle school students in the Madison School District will get to sleep a little later next school year. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Madison Middle Schools will start at 8.40 and dismiss at 4.10, except for early dismissal on Monday. The later start times will begin starting in the fall. Early start elementary schools are also getting a small scheduling change. Those schools will now start at 7.40 a.m. Madison High School students will continue to start the day at 8.15 a.m. The new start times reflect a policy change adopted in 2018, but not adopted until the next school year. Uh, the policy change was driven by a study committee that found that adolescents and teens are more alert and ready to learn if the school day starts later in the morning. A break for parents there, I guess. Finally, a Madison icon will never be the same, or at least its name won't be. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Wienermobile is undergoing a rechristening. Going forward, Oscar Mayer's ubiquitous 30-foot mobile hot dog will be known as the Frankmobile. I guess that's an improvement. The company says the new name will coincide with a new hot dog recipe, which the company will be unveiling this summer. But don't fret, the iconic vehicle, although getting a new name, will be continue to make the rounds both in Madison and across the country. And those are the headlines on, on to the day's, rest of the day's top stories. A group of community members attempted to meet with CUNA Mutual Group Management yesterday to deliver a petition asking the company to bargain in good faith with their unionized workers. But as they went to deliver their petition, they were met with locked doors, just days ahead of a potential strike by union workers. WORT reporter Greg Jabowski has the story. Yesterday at noon, at the sprawling office complex of Madison's CUNA Mutual Group, about 25 members of the Madison area community tried to deliver a petition that demanded, among other things, good faith bargaining between CUNA Mutual and its union, the Office of Professional Employees International Union Local 39, and to reinstate fired union steward Joe Avica. 
the online petition had gathered 2,400 signatures and was printed out, ready to be handed to CUNA management. Adrian Padgett, a member of the United Faculty and Academic Staff, or UFAS, at UW-Madison, gave the background to yesterday's community action. People are out here because the workers at CUNA Mutual Group have decided to take a strike action coming this Friday in response to delayed negotiations, stalls, retaliation. And I think um, it sounds to me like the employer's uh, lack of good faith in the bargaining process. They've been bargaining for over 400 days now, and the employer hasn't moved off any of their proposals. They have fired the chief steward for activity um, in his union. And so now they're taking the next step, and that next step is um, going on a ULP strike, an unfair labor practice strike. But the group had no luck at the first building they went to. Can, can you direct us where that is? 5810. That one, that one. That one? Great. When they went to the building they had just been directed to, someone inside the lobby could be seen closing and locking the large electronic doors that served as a visitor's entrance. When the doors were opened again, the way was blocked by a CUNA security officer who told the group that he was sorry, but that he had orders not to allow the group into the building, and if the group refused to leave, they would be guilty of trespass. After repeated but ultimately fruitless entreaties to enter, or even to deliver the petition, the group left with its petition undelivered. Rabbi Bonnie Margulis, Executive Director of Wisconsin Faith Voices for Justice, expressed disappointment. I just find it appalling that, that uh, CUNA Mutual's board, I guess it's the board and the CEO, are afraid to meet with a handful of peaceful people who are here just to deliver letters of support for the workers. I don't know what they're afraid of, um, but it was really dismaying. Here are some voices of people at yesterday's action. David Newby, AFT 3220, President Emeritus, Wisconsin State AFL-CIO. You know, workers are strong only when they stick together and support each other. So what happens to workers at CUNA affects workers at other workplaces, not only in Madison and Dane County, but throughout Wisconsin and the country. So it's important for people to be here, and it's great to see that they're from various unions and various labor-supporting organizations out to support the CUNA workers themselves. Uh, I'm Dan Seal, S-E-E-L, and I am a graduate worker at UW-Madison and a member of the Teacher Assistant Association. For workers anywhere to get a better deal, uh, to get what they deserve in the workplace, uh, workers need to stand together no matter where they're employed, no matter where they work. Uh, workers need to be united for all of us. My name is Stephanie Salgado, and I am the Madison organizer for Voces de la Frontera. And um, why is... Um why is Voces' organization out here today? Voces is in solidarity with workers' rights, and we are in standing solidarity with CUNA workers who are out trying to demand a negotiation from their CEO who has been lacking, or in other sense, canceling meetings last minute to do a bargain of a negotiation for better working conditions. Um, and a lot of demands that they have. So definitely Voces is out here to support the community since we are here and we're now, and we're not gonna be silenced. I'm Will Petsky and I'm the treasurer for Madison Area DSA. We at DSA, for some of our members, are also members of the union and we think it's important to stand up for all unions and all working people. My name is Colin Gillis and I am a nurse with SEIU Wisconsin. Uh, I'm out here today to support workers' rights. CUNA workers have been demanding a fair contract for months and months and their employer won't bargain with them in good faith. And if we can't have workers 
bargaining in good faith with their employers to get a fair contract. All workers are vulnerable to uh, oppression and attack and inequity. So that's why I'm here. I want to show that you know all workers, all workers' rights are connected, whether you work in an office or whether you work in a hospital. CUNA Mutual Management's reluctance to hear from the community group or even accept a petition seems to be echoed in the negotiating stance with OPEIU Local 39, who have filed unfair labor practice charges that, among other things, says that the company is refusing to bargain in good faith a violation of labor law. Local 39 has authorized an unfair labor practice strike, and CUNA workers could go out as early as this Friday. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jaboski. When you get a robocall asking for a donation, it's generally clear from the get-go what's going on. But a network is using advanced robocall technology to obfuscate the line between human and computer and is raking in millions of dollars in the process. While the calls claim to go toward various political campaigns, a new report from the New York Times has found that instead the money is going to a network of nonprofits, and at its heart are three Wisconsin consultants. Our producer, Nate Weggehelp, spoke with David Ferenthold, an investigative reporter with the New York Times, about his story earlier today. Just briefly, David, can you outline what you found in your story there? Sure. So the groups we wrote about may be familiar to your listeners because they are some of the biggest robocallers in the United States. So these are people that call uh, people at home or on their cell phones and say, we're raising money for either the police or veterans or firefighters. Uh, we're, raising the, we're political groups raising money to help those people. Um, and they've raised $89 million collectively. These five groups together have raised $89 million over, since 2014, as you said. But the thing that's surprising about these groups is that even though they raise this money to help these beloved groups through politics, only about 1% of their money has actually gone into politics, has gone to helping specific candidates, buying ads, giving donations, getting people out to vote. The other 99% went elsewhere. Most of it went completely out of politics, either to just pay for more robocalls to keep the scheme going, or as you said, about $2.8 million went to these three consultants who got their start in Wisconsin conservative politics. Those guys were, we were told by people who know these groups really well, those three guys were sort of the hidden force behind all of these groups, and they seem to get a big chunk of their money. And now I do want to talk about these three Wisconsin men that are sort of at the heart of all this. That's John Connors, Simon Lewis, and Kyle Michael, I believe. Uh, what, can you, what can you tell me about them? Connors w- was sort of the most prominent. He was uh, the campus Republican uh, president at Marquette back in 2008. He got involved in the sort of Scott Walker machine as Walker was uh, running for governor. He was county executive at the time and played a sort of a small role in the Walker machine. If some of your listeners really, really remember the details of the various political scandals and intrigues of the like early 2010s, Connors was in charge of a couple of nonprofits that were set up by pro-Walker people basically to funnel money around Wisconsin politics and buy ads that would support Republican judges, support uh, Walker during his recall election, support Republicans in that era. So he was sort of a minor player in the Scott Walker world. But then he also sets up his own uh, political campaign firm called Campaign Now, uh, and he employs these other two guys who were sort of in campus politics with him in Wisconsin at the same time, but not as sort of magnetic, not as charismatic, not as successful. Simon Lewis and Kyle Mikeley. Those two guys both work for him at his firm, Campaign Now, and then eventually break off and start their own firms, but remain very close to John Connors. So those are the three who sort of form the core of this whole scheme. 
And now, like you said, collectively between all these groups, they raised uh, $89 million, and a lot of it seems to be funneled back into robocalling. Uh, were you able to find out exactly how this money is is being spent? It, it looks like it's being moved from organization to organization to organization. How were you able to track this money? Well, that was the, really the hard part of this reporting. So it's sort of a paradox. These groups do have to report, these nonprofit groups do have to report what they spend. Uh, but they report it to the IRS. The IRS is the regulator for these groups. And they report. And so the IRS makes this information really hard to find, hard to search. But then these groups make it even harder because they report their transactions. Uh, they're following the letter of the law, but they're doing it in a way that makes it really hard to understand the big picture, which is they, they report their transactions like $1 at a time. So you'll see, you know, just to understand six months of spending by one of these groups, you need to read like a thousand pages of $1 transactions. And so it took us a huge amount of work with computers to scrape, digitally scrape all those files and then make them into something useful like a, sp- a spreadsheet. And then start to add up those $1 transactions and figure out, okay, well, who are the vendors these groups are actually paying most of their money to? And then that led us to another sort of set of obfuscation, which is a lot of the vendors were these shell companies that didn't, you know, they weren't people. They were often shell companies where it was really hard to figure out who their owners were. And so we spent a lot of time trying to get past that and figure out, okay, well, now we know who the vendors are, who is behind the vendors. And in some cases, it turned out that what looked like a bunch of different vendors in different states, unconnected to each other, were sort of behind the curtain, all connected to one of these three guys from Wisconsin. So the money was all flowing back through these, you know, kind of disguised by flowing to all these different PO boxes in different states, but it would eventually end up back in their hands. And now you spoke with several board members who were involved in some of these organizations for this piece, and and they said that even they were sort of left in the dark about how this money was being spent, correct? Yeah, that part really surprised me. So if you look at each one of these nonprofits, they all have their own board. They tell the IRS, look, this is our president, our treasurer, our secretary. And I thought those people, you know, in any other nonprofit, the guy who's the president knows how the, how, what the foundation is doing, what the nonprofit is doing. Um, but when we called those people, they said the opposite. They said, yeah, look, I'm, it looks like I was president. My name is on there. I was officially the president, but I actually had no role in running the, running the, uh, the nonprofit. I was told basically, you know, we need you to sign up for this, like, you know, low effort job, just sort of put your name on these forms and sometimes sign some paperwork. But they said, even though I was the president or in one case, I was the treasurer, I didn't really know what was happening. In fact, it was these three consultants. Some of the time, sometimes they didn't even have a formal role at the organization, but they were the ones controlling it all and keeping the actual board in the dark. And you also spoke with the three consultants in this story, as well as their lawyer. What did they have to say about this situation? Well, they say basically, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. We weren't trying to enrich ourselves. But when you ask, like, well, okay, you raised, you told people you were raising money to help police politically or help firefighters politically. How did you do that? Do you feel like you lived up to the promises you made to those people if you took $89 million and only spent 1% of them on politics. And they say, yes, well, in fact, we just have a different philosophy about how to help politicians. You know, if we want to help politicians, we don't just give our money to them. We don't just, you know, we don't buy ads that tell people to vote for them. We do it in a much more indirect way. You know, so we will we'll raise the issues of like, you know, policemen are having a hard time now. or There's lots of criticism of police. And those sort of obliquely raised issues will shift voters in a more subtle way. So they'll you know, their theory is, look, these, we can push these voters to the candidates we want, but we don't ever have to say the candidates' names. We'll just do it indirectly. I should say, though, that the benefit of that, you know, they didn't say they did it for this reason, but the benefit of that model of being that indirect is you get a lot less regulation, a lot less oversight. 
if you don't actually give any money to any candidates or run ads for any candidates, the regulation of you and the campaign finance system really shrinks. And so you have a lot more freedom uh, if you don't give money to anybody and a lot less fewer people looking over your shoulder. And speaking of those regulations, I sort of want to get into the legality of all of this. Uh, what does the current campaign finance laws say about a, a situation like this? Well, this is a real blind spot. So who wrote, you think back, who wrote the campaign finance regulations? It was written by politicians. And they they had a trust. They had a, you know, they had like a, a conception of how the human mind worked that was wrong. And that conception was they thought anybody who raises money for politics, for a political cause, is going to spend it on politics. We don't need to write a regulation that makes them spend it on politics. You know, everybody, why else would you raise this money if you weren't going to use it to help candidates? So the system that they constructed is designed to police who puts money into politics by giving money to politicians or supporting them. It sort of looks out and, and you know, limits those contributions and provides some transparency so you don't get a quid pro quo where I give you a, a donation and then you help me when you're in office. What it's not designed to do is to stop people who don't want to put the money into politics, who want to raise money from people and then siphon it basically out of politics, either into their own pocket or into fundraising expenses or whatever. So the, if you do that, if you, if you raise money and then don't give it to politicians, the only regulation you face is from the IRS because you're still technically a nonprofit group and nonprofit groups are regulated by the IRS. And the rule that applies there is that the IRS says you must be operated primarily. That's the important word, primarily for the purpose of having of, of, of influencing candidate elections, influencing elections where some candidate is running. And so that's a really loose rule. There's not a lot of evidence the IRS really does much to enforce it. But, you know, the people that I talked to, the campaign finance experts said, look, this is a loose rule, but these groups seem to be, you know, stepping outside. They seem to be doing things that even that loose rule doesn't seem to allow. And now I want to talk a little bit about how this money is actually being raised. It's all through this complex robocall system, correct? Tell me about that. Yeah, this blew me away. Uh, so these are they're robocalls. So it's a it's a computer calling you. But you know when you think of what does a robocall sound like, or at least when I do, I think of maybe it's a computerized voice, or it's a foreign accent, or you know when you pick up, you can hear sort of the, the ringing of the call center in the background. These calls have none of that. They have none of the markers of what you and I would think of as a quote robocall or a spam call. Instead, when you pick up the phone. There's a voice on the phone that sounds like mostly like I'm sort of weary Midwestern cop. Sometimes it sounds like a like a you know a New York accent, like an NYPD cop might. Often the voice says your name. If you have a common first name, it'll say your name, and then it begins with sort of a dad joke. You know, he'll say, "Oh man, I'm glad you picked up. You're harder to reach than a rabbit on roller skates." Or, you know, "I'm glad you picked up. That last call was tougher on me than my mother-in-law's meatloaf." You know, you, you start out with a little joke that makes them seem like, you know, somebody you could talk to. And also like a little sort of you feel sorry for them because the last caller was mean to them or because maybe they called. It sounds like they called you and you didn't pick up. It's a robot. It's still a robot. The way that they do these calls is they have a voice actor record a whole bunch of names and as well as sort of a spiel, including mother-in-law jokes, chuckles, ha-has. And also a whole bunch of other answers to questions you might ask, you know, about how the group works or are you a robot? Where does the money go? And so some, when, when you pick up, you're talking to a computer and there's somebody behind that computer pushing buttons to play the right little snippet of dialogue. But you can you can talk to these people. You can give them your credit card. Never talk to a human and never know. Never know you're talking to a computer. And do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share that you think are important about your story here? Well, I guess the main thing would just be for listeners. You know, if you're wondering, 
you know, what do I do if somebody like this calls me? Definitely ask a lot of questions about the, whoever calls. If you're thinking about giving money to somebody, ask a lot of questions. Have them send you something in writing. Do what you can to make sure that the money you're giving goes where you think it's going. Because just because a group has police officers or firefighters in their name doesn't mean that, A, that there's any police officers or firefighters involved, or B, that the money you're giving will help the causes that they, are, that they say they champion. So just to be aware that there are groups like this out there and that they're after your money, so you need to be a little more informed before you give. I've been talking with David Farenthold, investigative reporter with the New York Times, about his most recent story about a network of political nonprofits raising millions of dollars and spending very little of it on actual political campaigns. Now, we just sort of covered a sliver of this story, so you can read the full thing for yourself online at nytimes.com. David, thank you so much again for talking with me. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Earlier this year, Governor Tony Evers included over $100 million in his proposed 2023 budget to address PFAS here in Wisconsin. While that plan is slated to be debated by the State Budget Writing Committee tomorrow, Republican lawmakers are now working to introduce their own bill to address PFAS. To compare and contrast the two plans, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Peter Burris with Wisconsin Conservation Voters earlier today. So, Peter, just sort of set the stage. What is the current state of PFAS and PFAS regulation here in Wisconsin? I guess to begin, for those who aren't familiar, PFAS are a class of highly toxic human-made chemicals. They have been tied to really serious health-related impacts like complications with pregnancy, um, development issues, heart disease, testicular cancer. Um, And kind of the state of the the lay of the land of what we know about PFAS in Wisconsin at the moment, um, these chemicals have been detected in over 70 communities. Those 70 communities represent more than 2.2 million Wisconsinites. And why we're beginning to really get a handle on where across the state we are facing PFAS contamination is because of standards that the state set, uh, the legislature and the governor together decided to set these standards uh, last summer. We have state-based drinking and surface water standards for a couple PFAS chemicals, but they are not, they're outdated standards, unfortunately, already. They are not protective of human health. Everything we're learning about these chemicals is that any level is really quite dangerous And so we need to be doing everything we can to support communities to ensure that every Wisconsinite can turn on the tap and know that the water that's coming out of it is safe to drink and, you know, ultimately move towards prevention of these chemicals and and stronger regulations that are more protective of our communities. And now, Peter, earlier this year, Governor Tony Evers included about $100 million in his proposed budget to address PFAS here in Wisconsin. What was what was all included in that? Sure. So we are very supportive of this proposal. It it came out of a lot of work and a lot of stakeholder engagement. So the state has a PFAS action plan that's engaged, impacted community members and and groups across the state, um, leading us to this proposal, this uh, $106 million proposal. And the way that's chunked up 
it, it includes a proposal for $100 million for flexible support to our local communities who find PFAS contamination. That includes communities that are on municipal drinking water systems, but also communities that have residents living on, on uh, private drinking water. And that's about a third of Wisconsinites use uh, private wells for their drinking water. It also included in that kind of other $6 million amount uh, included funding for testing to really get a better sense of where exactly we're facing PFAS contamination, not only in our our drinking water, surface water, also our groundwater, our fish and wildlife, our air. And that included um, a proposal for 11 staff members at at the DNR to support some of this work around the state, as well as um, emergency relief funding and education to the Department of Health Services. So a lot of really good things included in that $106 million proposal. And now GOP lawmakers are currently circulating a bill for co-sponsorship that would also look to address PFAS here in Wisconsin. So can you just briefly outline what this bill would do? Sure. So if it's okay, like, I guess a little step back, the Joint Finance Committee votes on, on funding tomorrow um, in this kind of preliminary stage of deciding what goes in the budget. So, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about this bill and, and the different pieces in it um, and kind of reemphasize that this proposal, the governor's, is still on the table. There's still opportunities for folks to show their support for this specific proposal. Not too late to call legislators. They'll be voting tomorrow on what exactly is going to be included in the budget. There is also this bill on the table, which has a lot of good stuff, um, a lot of things that we also have questions about. And so we at Wisconsin Conservation Voters have not yet taken a position on the bill. We're doing our homework. There are some similarities to what the governor's proposed. It includes funding for local communities, a municipal grant program, funding for private well owners, um, funding for folks, uh, farmers, for example, who find PFAS contamination on their land but are not, you know, we're not responsible for it, funding for the, the collection of firefighting foam that contains PFAS. So those are some similarities, difference in the, some differences in the specifics and the level of flexibility within those different, uh, those different buckets. But generally, it seems like those are kind of the big similarities between the bill and what the governor's proposed. Some key differences, which we're still kind of trying to figure out the impact of and and get a sense from impacted folks across the state, the extent to which, you know, how how exactly they feel about these differences. The governor, um, in his initial proposal, included a a call for standards across the state for Wisconsin to be leading the way on setting health-based standards uh, and also include some specific uh, proposals around staffing. Those are not included in in the bill proposed by Republicans. Also, there are some pieces around what the DNR may or may not do based on whether there is an existing standard in the state. There is, there's not really any accountability pieces for the companies who have knowingly put PFOS into our environment um, and not told residents. This type of fire products in northeastern Wisconsin is an example where they knew they were um, contaminating water for years and didn't tell folks, which had disastrous health-related impacts. Um, and, and they are now, the fight to hold them accountable is, is ongoing. But kind of pulling those together, um, the, there's a section in the bill on limitations on DNR actions relating to PFAS, and we just don't have a clear sense at this point just how limiting that proposal is. So we want a better sense of that piece in particular before, before we take a position. But there are also pieces in the bill around studies and reporting. So, you know, we, we love to see a proposal for research uh, through our great UW system to better identify what are the best practices for disposing and, and destroying these toxic chemicals. So that's, you know, that's something that was is great to see and I'm eager to learn more about. 
there's a proposal to make sure that uh, we can reduce the cost of, of testing. So eager to learn more about the mechanics of that. So again, a lot of homework to do yet on this bill, a lot of folks to talk with, some similarities and some some key differences. Looking at, you know, sort of this bill and what Governor Evers proposed earlier this year and that the Joint Finance Committee is going to be taking up tomorrow, uh, what else that's not included in these do you think that needs to be done by our state government to to sort of start really tackling the issue of PFAS here in Wisconsin? Well, we absolutely need to be talking about prevention. Um, that is something that we've seen Democrats propose in the past and um, that we have supported. Other states are leading the way on that front. We need to be phasing out the use of these chemicals because they are, they are called forever chemicals for a reason. Once they get into our environment, they don't break down. That's why they're so, one of the reasons they're so dangerous to us as humans and our fish and wildlife is that they bioaccumulate and the risk associated with them just increases more and more over time. So we need to, first priority is getting safe drinking water to our communities across the state, to the 70 plus communities that have detected, some of those which have a very, very serious issue, um, high, high levels of, of PFAS contamination. That's, you know, that's the first priority, and I, I sense that there is growing bipartisan support to get something done on that front. So that's really exciting. That's different than it was just two years ago, and it's a testament to the hard work of folks across the state to advocate for this issue. Where I still think there is a lot of work is, again, on that, that prevention piece, so preventing, preventing the use of these chemicals, phasing them out of our products. And Peter, do you have just any final thoughts on anything that we've talked about here today that you would like to share? I guess I'd just like to reiterate that it, this is one of the best times in, in a two-year budget cycle. Folks have an opportunity to make a big impact on not only this issue, but water quality more broadly and anything you care about. Um, in real time, there are, negotiating, there are negotiations going on. Joint finance is not going to vote until later t- tomorrow afternoon on some of these different pieces. The, the Assembly and the Senate are going to vote in June. Uh, it's going to go to the governor's desk, the bud- proposed budget at the end of June. So there are still lots of opportunities to have an impact. And if folks like what the governor has proposed, like we do, um, see the importance of the flexibility of the testing of the staff, um, all these different key pieces, it is still worth calling legislators and fighting for those pieces. We hope that the Joint Finance Committee will move along um, many of these good recommendations and you know, we will, of course, be engaged around this bill that was introduced and are excited about some of the good pieces. Like I said, have questions about some of the others, trying to decide how exactly we're going to engage yet. But yeah, just wanted to reiterate that there is a lot of opportunity right now to have your voice heard and to have a, an impact on the decisions that are going to be made tomorrow afternoon and, and in June. I've been talking with Peter Burris with the Wisconsin Conservation Voters about the GOP penned proposal to address PFAS here in Wisconsin and the provisions in Governor Evers' budget to also address PFAS here in Wisconsin. Peter, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Nate. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we didn't quite hit 80 degrees yesterday, as I thought we might, but we certainly did get our backdoor cold front to come sweeping through the area from the northeast. That knocked 14 degrees off the thermometer in the single hour between 7 and 8 p.m., and temperatures continued downward from there as we went overnight. 
You could see that front actually quite clearly on the uh, local visible satellite imagery that we have on the WORT weather webpage. It was demarcated by a narrow line of broken cumulus that towered up along it as that front pushed westward and southward across the state in the late afternoon and evening hours. But the sun was also being filtered yesterday, uh, even before that front came through, by what you might have assumed were just some diffuse uh, cirrus up at uh, high above the uh, earth up there. Those started uh, heading southward down the state in the mid to late morning hours of yesterday. That milky sky covering, which is still above us today, is actually smoke from wildfires burning out in the western part of Canada, mostly up in northwestern Alberta and adjacent parts of British Columbia and Northwest Territories, where upper ridging and near-record high temperatures have uh, obviously created some dangerous fire conditions. You might have noticed uh, that there's been an uptick in these uh, similar kinds of smoke episodes around the spring green-up time in recent years. Uh, Indeed, the one last year was actually pretty notable for both its length and uh, how much smoke we saw. So uh, uh, just one more reminder where it needed of the impact that we've had on the climate and the sort of trouble that it causes. Uh, Incidentally, we have a link to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Fire and Smoke Mapping webpage. It's down the, towards the bottom of our weather webpage, so you can check to see when smoke uh, may become a hazard from upstream fires. The smoke plume is clearly visible still on the visible satellite imagery that we have on the weather webpage, and although it doesn't show up so well on the water vapor image of North America that's up there, That image does show the general upper ridging that is covering western Canada now, as well as the couple of waves that are proceeding southeastward down the front side of the jet stream that runs around that ridge. The uh, upper trough that came in behind yesterday's cold front is visible on the image swinging past us to the southeast currently, while a shortwave ridge is now poised to descend uh, out of southern Manitoba and Ontario across this area behind it with yet one more upper trough with a quite vigorous upper low swirling inside it further northwest still up past Lake Winnipeg. Those features will be swinging our temperatures up and down here over the next uh, couple of days with the cold frontal transition between that ridge and trough tomorrow evening being our best prospect for precipitation in the next, oh, probably week or so. Low-level moisture is going to be fairly limited as that front comes through late tomorrow, so we may see some uh, maybe high-based showers popping up and perhaps fading in the late afternoon hours before hopefully more successful showers and thunderstorms take advantage of what will be maybe slightly better moisture in the evening and overnight. Uh, Any storms that form uh, might produce some gusty winds tomorrow given the dry near-ground environment. Uh, but they should otherwise remain sub-severe. The upper low behind the cold front does look to be taking a more eastward rather than southward tack on Friday on the models. So while I'm expecting to see uh, some decent cumulus growth on Friday, it should be without showers falling from them. And we'll warm again then Saturday and Sunday with a possible backdoor cold front uh, eventually passing at some point later Sunday and making us cool again for a day on Monday. But by and large, we'll be up towards 70 degrees over this coming weekend, which is the uh, average high temperature this time of year. But back to tonight, uh, beyond smoke, the sky should generally remain cloud-free with temperatures dropping back to the low 40s on light easterly winds veering southeast by dawn. Tomorrow, southerly winds, which will increase to about 10 to 17 miles per hour in the afternoon, should take temperatures 
Uh, into the 70s, though, how far exactly is a bit of a challenge. The uh, prognostic soundings show temperatures nearing 80, actually, in the mid to late afternoon. But between the continuing uh, pall of wildfire smoke, which will be over us, and an increase in cirrus as well and other high clouds from upstream convection, I'm guessing that uh, maybe mid or possibly even low 70s are a better bet for tomorrow. Passing showers in the late day may come through uh, first in kind of a weak preliminary line, followed by maybe a little better coverage after, uh, say, 6 or 7 or 8 p.m., with uh, showers and possibly a thunderstorm remaining possible through at least the early part of the overnight with uh, precipitation then working uh, northwest to southeast later in the night. Temperatures will drop back to the mid-50s with southerly winds veering west and then northwest before dawn. And Friday we'll see clearing of the high clouds, but with uh, cumulus growth during the day, possibly some filling in with some overcast from time to time. Uh, That'll hold temperatures down in the low uh, 60s, maybe the mid-60s, with the aid of uh, northwesterly winds up at uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour. Downwelling of that cooler and drier air as it comes in may bring the smoke closer to ground level, so you might actually begin to smell some of it on Friday. Temperatures will drop to the uh, mid-40s in the overnight on northwesterly winds down to 4 to 8 miles per hour. And Saturday should see better clearing, uh, though smoke will be a bit of a wild card. That'll depend uh, to some extent, I guess, on the status of the fires out to the west. Uh, But we're likely to approach 70 anyway on uh, continued northwesterly winds, with uh, 70 or low 70s again likely on Sunday, at least before the uh, westerly winds that day veer northeast and east later in the day. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 63 degrees. The dew point temperature is 38. Winds are out of the east at 6 miles per hour. Uh, Clear overhead, though, with the smoke up at an undetermined altitude. And uh, the barometer's at 30.00 inches of mercury and falling slowly. We go now to the middle of May 1966 for Madison's biggest and most successful political protest to date. Stu Levitan has the news from 57 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s May 16th, 1966, the anti-deferment sit-in. As the war in Vietnam kept getting worse, the monthly draft call kept getting higher. When it hit 40,000 in December 1965, Selective Service Director General Louis B. Hershey warned that, quote, marginal students, about 10% of university freshmen and sophomores, could soon lose their 2S student deferment and be drafted. With no clear definition of marginal, the American Council of Educators recommends that Hershey bring back the policy from the Korean War, using class rank and or a standardized test to determine deferments. That's what Hershey does, effective January 1966. UW Dean of Students Joseph Kaufman supports the policy, and most students go along with it. More than 8,000 campus men, about three-fourths of the male student body, return the IBM card telling the registrar to send their records to their local draft boards. But a very vocal and active group objects to the entire concept of college deferments. 
They argue that protecting privileged college students puts an unfair burden on the poor and non-white and insulates the politically powerful middle class from the war's true impact. They also warn that academic integrity suffers when grades literally become a matter of life and death. As 2,000 alumni gathered on Friday, May 13th, for their big weekend, about 200 students are meeting in the Memorial Union lobby to approve a set of demands, issued later that night by the Ad Hoc Committee on the University and the Draft, the CUD. They don't just want the university to publicly protest the current system. Their statement, drafted by Lowell Bergman and James Hawley, demands that the university, quote, refuse to cooperate with the selective service system by not releasing academic records or allowing the draft exemption tests to be held in university facilities, which would effectively prevent their classmates from getting a deferment. Sunday night, a group of several hundred debates whether to occupy the new administration building, where student records are kept, before voting not to do so. Early Monday afternoon, May 16th, University President Fred Harvey Harrington, Chancellor Robin Fleming, Dean Kaufman, and other administrators meet in Bascom Hall with 14 representatives of the CUD. Harrington rejects the CUD's demands, saying it must be up to each student whether to accept or decline the university's services in maintaining their deferment. The current system stays, he says, unless the faculty decides otherwise at its meeting on May 25th. While the Bascom Hall conference is going on, a rump group of about 250 assembles on the lawn outside the as-yet-unnamed administration building. To their back across Murray Street, the start of construction on the as-yet-unnamed Humanities Building. Then word comes down the hill that the administration has rejected all of the CUD's demands. So, math teaching assistant Hank Haslick and sophomore Bob Zwicker, elected just a few days earlier as the new leaders of the Madison Chapter of Students for a Democratic Society, move to occupy the building. The group agrees by acclamation, and they all walk in. At first, it's just the immediate rump group, but news zooms around campus, and scores of students start showing up, suddenly needing transcripts or a new ID card. The group keeps growing, and by late afternoon, more than 500 are jamming the lobby and hallways, with an equal number outside. By midnight, close to 1,500 students are taking part in the peaceful occupation. Philosophy grad student Bob Cohen, who will be arrested in the two Dow demonstrations in 1967, urges active obstruction, but the group collectively agrees to occupy but not disrupt. It's a wise decision. Madison Police Chief Wilbur Emery wants to clear the building, but Chancellor Fleming says the protesters can stay as long as they stay out of the way of office business, which they do. Republican Governor Warren Knowles says it's, quote, an internal matter for the university to handle, and it does. The only disruption inside comes from some troublemakers, not part of the protest. University police clear the main lobby at 11 o'clock to remove them, then let the protesters back in. Outside, some who oppose the action hurl insults and eggs. Campus Police Chief Ralph Hansen, protecting the protesters, catches a few. Not always with his hands. About 175 students stay overnight, entertained by a showing of Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. 
Through Tuesday the 17th and throughout the whole week, a unique sense of community develops, something new to all but a few. They're sharing their space and their food, studying together for next week's finals, and really discussing the issues. For many, this new level of communication and collaboration is the highlight of the sit-in. The leading history professors come by, some to stay a while. George Mossy is a calming presence, Harvey Goldberg his usual intense self. William Appleman Williams gives a disjointed discourse comparing the sit-in to a baseball game, with the faculty soon coming to bat to win the day. It's not his finest moment. The only professor to actually sit in is sociology professor Hans Gerth. By focusing on the draft rather than the war, which most students still support, the action breaks through to groups long hostile to the entire anti-war movement. Both the Wisconsin Student Association Senate and the Interfraternity Council pass resolutions denouncing the draft, calling college deferments bad for education, and endorsing the CUD's demands. For the first time, students from the dorms, Langdon Street, and Mifland are all on the same side. On Wednesday the 18th, an extraordinary gathering on the historic Bascom Hill. Harrington, Fleming, and others at Lincoln Terrace addressing an afternoon crowd of about 8,000. Fleming praises the protesters for what he calls their, quote, disciplined behavior and responsible manner, which he says has, quote, proven once again that the right to protest, which is essential in a democratic society, can be handled in a responsible manner at the University of Wisconsin. And he announces a special faculty meeting on the draft, as CUD demanded, for Monday the 23rd. We have one veteran activist leader, John Coatsworth says. The sit-in ends peacefully Friday afternoon as everyone prepares for the faculty meeting on Monday. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is engineering our sounds live as we speak. Nate Weggy helped produce this newscast. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.